0: One Hope Church Good morning, glad each and every one of you are here today Uh, Especially those of you who are visiting with us, a special welcome to you We're we're just thankful uh, that you took time to be here with us we know some of you have traveled this morning to be here, so we really just uh, want to thank you for that. Um, it's already been a great morning. I believe it's going to continue to be as we look into the Word of God and as we um, worship, continue to worship the Lord together and to learn from Jesus Himself as He teaches us from His Word. Um, and we're also going to have baptisms this morning and fellowship lunch that's all ready, so we're just uh, thankful this morning to be able to enjoy all of this, all of God's blessings that He has for us today. Um, But we do want to just pray and and ask God to work um, in each of our hearts, because I believe that God does want to speak to each one of us um, on a personal level this morning, that He doesn't want us to leave here the same way that we walked in. Um, You know, this isn't a social club, this isn't just a place where, you know, we come together on Sunday mornings to see people or to make a business deal or um, anything like that. It's a place where we are to worship God and to learn from Him and to have Him change our our hearts, and our minds. Um, we're going straight through the book, the Gospel of Luke. Um, we're in Luke chapter 18, if you brought your Bible with you this morning. If you didn't, that's okay. Just um, you know, try to listen um, along. We'll read um, every verse that we talk about um, in its context. And we're taking actually the whole the section even in its context because we're go- just going straight through the book. And one of the advantages of doing that is regardless who is preaching um, this Sunday morning, or next Sunday morning, or the Sunday morning after that, um, we're going to keep going straight through the Gospel of Luke. Um, and there's some advantages to that. One advantage is that we don't get to skip difficult things. We have to tackle all of the difficult things. Now, in reality, there's not too much that's controversial this morning in our passage. That's not true in all passages. In some passages, there's things that definitely uh, fly a- against the way most of us want to think or, or want to believe. Um, but this morning, it's pretty straightforward on an intellectual level, but it's not so straightforward on a heart level. And so I, I want to ask you to en- engage both your mind and your heart this morning um, and allow God to, to speak into both of those as we look into his word. So let's pray and then we'll begin in Luke chapter 18. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege to be here this morning. We thank you for each person, for each life, for each family, God, that's joined us today. And Lord, we just pray that this morning that it would be undeniable that you are with us. We know, God, that you sent your son Jesus for that very purpose, Emmanuel, God, with us. And we thank you. God, that in our our sinfulness and our rebellion against you, that you did not leave us hopeless and helpless, but that you sent Jesus for us to die on the cross for our sins. We are thankful that you rose him on the third day and that sin and death were defeated and that there is victory in the name of Jesus. And Jesus, we thank you that you sacrificed everything for us. For your church, that you would redeem us by your precious blood. And so, Lord, as we look into your word and what you you taught us, please help us to take it seriously, and please teach us even by your Holy Spirit, we pray. In your name, Jesus, we ask these things. Amen. So in Luke chapter 18, let's begin by reading the first eight verses, and here's another example of Jesus. He's going to use a bad example to teach a good lesson. Uh, you'll understand as I read this what he means. And it's, he says this, he says, He told them a parable that they should always pray and never give up. There was, a certain, there was a judge in a certain city, and he said, who neither feared God nor cared about people. And a widow of that city came to him repeatedly, saying, Give me justice in this dispute with my enemy. And the judge ignored her for a while, but finally he said to himself, I don't fear God or care about people. But this woman is driving me crazy. I'm going to see that she gets justice because she is wearing me out with her constant requests. Then the Lord said, learn a lesson from this unjust judge. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? And I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. But when the Son of Man returns... How many will he find on the earth who have faith? So let's stop there for a moment. We want to look at the lessons in this section. A first lesson, you know, Jesus, uh, you know, Luke tells us what the lesson is from the beginning that Jesus is giving, that we should always pray and never give up, to be persistent in our request to God, to continually ask God for, for what we need. Now, we know from the whole scripture we need to be praying according to the will of God and for the purposes of God, and not just for, our, you know, our own, you know, desires. And so he uses this example of a judge who's not a just judge. He's an unjust judge. And he, you know, doesn't really care. You know, he likes his position of power, but he doesn't care exactly to do right. You know, he wants to use his position of power, as so many in our world use our position of power, just to uh, get something more for themselves, as opposed to, you know, fulfilling their responsibilities, And so, you know, he doesn't really care that this widow, you know, would receive justice. But because of her continual asking, he's going to give it to her. Now, how much more, Jesus says, if that's what an unjust, you know, earthly ruler will do, how much more will God give justice to his people? He says, will he delay long over them? He says, no, I tell you, he will grant justice to them quickly. Now, I can already hear people saying, well, wait a second, now, is it really quickly? I mean, you know, Jesus was here 2,000 years ago, and you're talking about things, you know, being quickly, and maybe would even make an accusation against God, as um, Peter even had to address this early on, in 2 Peter 3, 9, he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should (laughs) reach repentance. And so here we have, you know, two things that are true at the same time. One, that God is patient and that he is giving people time and opportunity to repent and to believe. And two, that in the grand scheme of eternity, it's not very long. It's actually very quickly. You know, you think about eternity forever and ever. And 2,000 years is, is not even a drop in the bucket of time because that bucket is infinite infinitely large, and so it hasn't been long, and yet we trust God that he is going to come and he's going to give justice, and we see injustice all over our world every day, but that injustice and the patience of God are both there, that opportunity for people to turn and to repent, which is to turn from their sins, to turn from their false beliefs and to believe in Jesus is there for them. And how many of us can look back at our lives and say, thank you, God, for the patience that you had with me? Thank you for the patience, because when I deserved that you long ago would have given up on me, when I deserved long ago that you would have been, you know, your patience would have run out and your judgment would have come, yet, God, you were patient. There are people in this room I know who can testify to that reality today. We thank God for his patience, because if we got what we deserved immediately when we deserved it, who could stand? Who could stand in the presence of a holy and powerful God? Not I. Not you either. And so he he says this, though. Jesus says, when the Son of Man returns, it's referring to himself, how many will he find on the earth who have faith? Now, it's a provocative question. He's not saying he won't find any. He's just saying, how many will he find? And if he came back today, would he find us being faithful to him and to his mission? Would he find us as people of faith? Would he find us as being having faith and being faithful people? So those are our lessons in the first eight, eight verses, but... We need to understand that as as Luke is writing this gospel through the uh, inspiration of the Holy Spirit and direction of the Holy Spirit, he's not just putting, you know, disconnected, you know, stories. Here's a random story here, and here's a random story there, and another one over here. There's a flow to all of it. It has connection, and it has purpose. And uh, sometimes we can almost go so slowly that we we miss that, and and we need to be reminded that there's a, a connection um, that is that is here. In the last uh, couple of chapters, Jesus has even been talking um, a lot about the rich and the poor, and he's, he's going to con- continue some of that theme um, t- in this the sections that we're looking at this morning. But he's going to pull in something here that's going to be good um, for us to understand, again, in this context. Put it, remember, put all this together. So verse 9 says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness, and scorned everyone else. So two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, "O oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner." I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. That's powerful. Because here in this scene, you have this Pharisee who is a religious leader. You know, everyone in the community looks to this person, and their evaluation, their judgment is that this is a righteous man, that if anyone is right before God, this person is. And that religious leader had the same perspective about himself. If anyone is right before God, I am. And he had, you know, his his you know, orthodox or correct beliefs intellectually to back that up. He knew what God had said in the Law and the Prophets. And he has some deeds to back that up. He says he fasts twice a week, you know, that he is a pious religious man before God and that he's fulfilling his duty by giving, you know, a tenth of his income that he meets the requirements of the law. He t- looks at himself as a follower of God. And then in contrast, you have this tax collector. You know, He's a, another Jewish man who is working for the invading you know, Roman Empire. And he's viewed by his people as a traitor. And he, he makes a little, puts a little extra in his pocket by cheating his own people. And if anybody is a sinner, if anybody is headed to hell, it's this guy. And everybody knows it. You know, the key thing about it is, he knows it too. He knows it too. He's, he, he's not making an excuse. He's not, you know, putting on a front. He knows where he stands before God. He knows that he's sinful and he's not trying to hide it. But when he humbles himself and beats his chest in sorrow and says, Oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. and that moment of request, in that simple asking of God for, for his forgiveness, he becomes a justified, a righteous man. Not based on what God has done, I mean not based on what he has done, but what on what God has done for him. And you see, this is the real difference. And this is what Jesus really wants to strike at today as we see what he's teaching here. Is that you can depend on your own righteousness or you can depend on the righteousness of Jesus. Ultimately, those are your two choices. You can be like this Pharisee who says, you know, I'm good enough. I've done good. I'm a good person on my own. And I don't need anyone else, not even God. I'm good enough on my own. And this really strikes at the heart of our, you know, Western individualism and materialism. I mean, it, so much of this speaks to our culture today. We're not really that different. You know, we we have this these you know individualistic mindset, this materialistic mindset in our culture. You know where. We, you know it's, it's really fascinating when when I talk to people and I say, you know, so what do you think is going to happen to you when you die? And, and a lot of times you get, well, you know, well, if there's a heaven or if there's something after, you know, I'm sure I'll be there because I'm a pretty good person. The assumption from the beginning, the starting point is I'm good enough. Now, in other cultures, it's not the same. We we, we have a partnership with the church of Mexico and we go there a lot and, you know, I, I'll be I'll be sitting, you know, in a taxi and, and talking to the taxi driver and, you know, what do you think is going to happen to you if we were in a wreck today and, and we all died? What would, what would happen to you? And, you know, and he'll say, oh, you know, I'd, I'd probably go to hell. Well, why? Just like this tax collector, he knows. He says, well, I've I've done some bad things. You know, I'd like to go to heaven, but I'm not a good you know, a good enough person. The problem for him is he doesn't really know the full solution, even though he's religious, even though he has a a crucifix hanging from his mirror that really ultimately for him is just a good luck charm. You know, that he hopes will give him some protection. But what's the solution? What's the answer? Well, you know, if I try harder, If I can become good enough, then maybe God will let me in and he doesn't understand that the the answer is hanging right before his eyes, literally. And it's hard for him to accept that God's grace would extend even to him. But we need to understand what Jesus is saying here that those who exalt themselves Will be humbled. The scripture says, you know, that God resists the proud. He resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then Luke continues, and he's going to keep emphasizing this point. He says, one day some parents brought their little children. Verse fifteen. Once some parents brought their little children to Jesus, so he could touch and bless them. But when the disciples saw this, they scolded the parents for bothering him. (laughs) Then Jesus called for the children and said to the disciples, Let the children come to me. Don't stop them. For the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like these children. I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Wow, there's a lesson there to love kids. (laughs) That's a big lesson, in it? It's not the only lesson. It's a huge lesson. We need to love on little children. But Jesus said, Unless you're like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom. Well, I think there's two points there that are really uh, salient for our, our discussion. One is that a child, you know, has faith. We talk about childlike faith, just to trust, you know. And, and, and here I want to I wanna say this in a, in, a, in a good family context. We know that, you know, many families are, are dysfunctional and Little children from a very young age can learn not to trust, you know, anything that they're just going to get lied to, and, you know, it can be pretty difficult. But here we have a context of, you know, of a, just speaking in context of a, of a godly home where parents, you know, really love their children, that, you know, those parents are going to, those kids are going to trust their, their parents. There's going to be, a, you know, just an implicit faith in them that the parents have their best interests at heart. Even in discipline, that there's there's that undergirding of love, you know, I, that they know, you know, mom and dad love me, yeah, that that is present. And so, but you think about that with faith, with trust, but there's and there's also a, a dependency. A child is dependent on its, you know, food and life and survival. It's dependent on others. Again, there's that dependency piece. Like a child is dependent on his parents. You know, you have to be dependent on God to save you. You can't have this, this concept of self-sufficiency. You know, you can just pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and you can you know, do good enough and be good enough on your own. You know, you, are, you know, we are utterly dependent on God. On His love and on His grace. On His mercy, we are dependent on Him. How can someone come to to God without first saying, "God, I need You"? You know, but again, in our culture, we kind of want to make Jesus like part of us twelve step program, where He's just sort of this like add on. You know, where where we really, you know, I got like ninety nine percent of it, and I just need Jesus for that other one percent. No, that's not it at all. The, the humility to say, you know, no, I am a sinful person. I'm in, I deserve God's judgment. I bring nothing to the table. Do you understand in that in that relationship when it comes to your to to salvation, that God is bringing everything to the table in Jesus Christ Himself. God brings everything to the table, and you bring nothing to the table other than humbling yourself and faith. That's it. But you don't bring any sort of qualitative goodness. The scripture says there's none righteous, no, not one. It says that all our good deeds are like filthy rags. You know, the best that we have is filthy before God. On our own, just in our flesh, the best that we can offer God is worthless. We are desperately in need of Jesus. And now here's the final final story for this morning that's just going to bring all this back and just really emphasize everything that we've already talked about this morning. But in verse 18, it says, Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit life, eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. To answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. When Jesus heard his answer, he said, There is still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Well when the man heard this he became very sad, for he was very rich. Let's stop there for a moment. There's a little more that Jesus says that we're going to hit this morning that's important, but we just want to stop there to get a, the context and a couple of important points. So we have this ruler. Uh, we know from, you know, this is also recorded in Matthew's Gospel and in Mark's Gospel. So we know from Matthew's Gospel that this ruler is of a, of a young age. He's a young man. What does it mean that he's a, a ruler? It's a, the Greek word there is just a generic name for ruler. It could be a Jewish ruler, it could be a a Roman ruler, um, but in the context, we see that this is a you know a Jewish man, you know, having kept the commandments, and so he's a Jewish ruler. Perhaps he's a ruler of a, over a synagogue. Um, you know, per- perhaps uh, you know he he uh, has certain responsibilities that maybe he's young enough to where he didn't fully earn those, but because of the money that he has, because of the family money that he has, he's, he gets a little bit of a a little bit of a bump. Um, quicker, perhaps, than he should. I mean, that's a there's a little bit of speculation there, but I just want us to have an idea um, of who this guy is in his in his mindset. That since he was young, he's been doing all the right things, and so he comes to Jesus though with a with that question because in his heart, I think it's pretty evident just on the question that he asks. That he's not certain if doing all those right things is enough. And so he says, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asks this provocative question. He says, why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. And so there's a first question there of what are you saying about Jesus? Who are you you saying that he is? Jesus is asking this young man, who are you, ultimately he's saying, who are you saying that I am? And then, you know, he he addresses this in a different way than I think most of us would if we, you know, have an understanding of of the gospel and that we're lost and that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, that he rose from the dead. You know, we would perhaps expect the answer very quickly to be here, well, believe in me because I'm about to go to the cross and die for your sins. That's kind of what we expect Jesus to say. But Jesus is going to take a different route. And so he tells, he says to the man, You know the commandments. And then starts to list some of them. You must not commit adultery, you must murder, you must not steal, you must not give false witness. You you should honor your father and mother. And you know, he, he says, Okay, I'm, you know, I've treated my neighbor well, I've done these things, I've done these things since I was young, I'm good. So again, he's got that self-justification going on. But Jesus exposes hearts. We see it throughout the Gospels. I think that's why a lot of people don't actually don't want to read the Gospels, even if they're interested in knowing about God, because, it, because there's a little bit, perhaps, understanding there that Jesus knows your heart, and through his word, he's going to challenge your heart. He's going to challenge your attitude and your perspective and your worldview. And so he says to him, Jesus says to him, there's still one thing you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Now you might protest, wait a second, wait a second, Jesus, that's not, there's no verse in the the law that says that a person has to sell everything and give it all to the poor. There's, you know, certain commandments that they had to follow about You know, giving, but nowhere did it say to sell everything that that was a requirement for everyone to do if you want to have eternal life. It's not there. Explicitly. But here's the issue, because what I want you to understand in this is that the issue ultimately isn't the money. It isn't the money. But it's the the place that the money has, it's the place that the wealth has in that young man's heart. Because what Jesus is trying to do is to show him that he is indeed a lawbreaker. Perhaps he's broken the law, the 10th commandment of being covetous, you know, of wanting more, even though he already has a lot. You can make, can make a case for that. But based on his response that he is he is sad because of his great wealth, we can see he had ultimately, he was always breaking the first commandment, which was, you shall have no other gods before me. And for this young man, that wealth was more than money. It was a God. It was his, and how do we know it was a God? We know it's a God because it was his priority. His great wealth was his, Number one priority. And the sad thing is, he probably learned that from his religious leaders. You know, Jesus has already talked about previously about how the Pharisees loved their money. You know, and so he was infected by the religious culture that he grew up in. He was contaminated by it. And he had it. And it's become an idol. It's become a god in his life. It has the place above God. And so the sad thing is that we, we see that when given the, the, the choice between, you know, follow Jesus or keep your money. The choice that he you know, makes, at least at this point, we don't know what he does in the future. But at this point, the choice he makes is to keep his money. It's more important to him than God is. So as Jesus has laid out two huge facts with this young man. First is that only God is good. And we've already, I think, nailed that pretty well. The second is that he's a lawbreaker. But even if he had kept the full law, Romans 3.20... It says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. And that's how Jesus is using the law in this young man's life, is to expose his sin. That's the purpose of the law. You know, people misunderstand and think that the purpose of the law is to give life. Well, no, the purpose of the law is not to give life. The purpose of the law is to show that you need God in order to have life. It shows our fallenness, it shows our brokenness, it shows our sinfulness, it shows that we are not adequate in ourselves because we are lawbreakers. And it doesn't matter if you've broken one of the laws or all of the laws, in the sight of God, that makes you a lawbreaker, guilty before God. Galatians 3:10 through 14 says for all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse for it is written cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them okay so if if you don't keep the law you're under a curse no one other than god even incarnate in jesus christ has kept the law fully Therefore, all are under a curse. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the one who does them shall live by them. I'm sorry. Let me, I just crossed lines. Let me read that again. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now this us hit just a couple things there. So we're all under a curse. We're all you know, under a curse because of the law because we haven't kept the law. And then, to redeem us, Christ has to be cursed like us. It says, cursed is everyone who is hung from a tree. So he takes on our curse and he becomes under a curse for us. Why? So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. It was also for the Jews as well. Don't misunderstand that. But this understanding that you know, even those of us who were not Jewish people, who were never Quote unquote, under the law, we're still guilty, and we still had to be able to enter into the promises of Abraham and the blessings of Abraham. And how do we do that? Well, it's through Jesus Christ Himself. He's the one who made the way. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So this is ultimately the solution. Jesus gives us the solution, and he gave that rich young ruler the solution. In verse 22, when he said, you know, to come and to follow him, what Jesus was asking that young man to do was to lay down his burdens, to lay down his guilt, to lay down his false gods, and to come and to follow Jesus. Jesus had love for this young man. That's obvious in Mark's account of the same passage when it says Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, one thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, take up the cross and follow me. Jesus loved him. Jesus, you know, the desire of Jesus was not to condemn him. The desire of Jesus this morning is not to condemn you. It's not his desire. His desire is to offer life and life eternal. A joyful life and an abundant life. But it's also a life of sacrifice. It's a life of purpose. It's a life that demands that Jesus has the first place and no one else or no other thing. And so, you know, this morning you might be tempted to sit here and think, well, I'm not rich and I don't have a problem with money, so I'm okay. But the question, if you're not following Jesus this morning, is what is your barrier? What is your barrier? What is wh- What hinders you from following Jesus? Is it your pride that doesn't want to say, I need help from another? Is it a particular sin where you say, you know, I don't want to give that up. I love my sin more than I love God. Is it a person, Lord? I wouldn't want to have to give up that relationship in order to follow you. Speaking, of if you're not married, perhaps this morning, and one is, follow- you know, one knows God or wants to know God, and the other doesn't. Well, what would you do? Perhaps it is money. Perhaps it's control. That you don't want Jesus to be king because you want to make all the decisions in your life and you want to decide, you know, who your friends are and what job you have and where you live and what sort of work you do and you want to be the one to decide all of those things for yourself and you don't want God telling you what to do. Perhaps that barrier is control. Perhaps it's a different sort of barrier altogether. Perhaps it's that religious people, perhaps it's the Pharisees who were beating their chests and saying, I'm righteous and you're not, and you see the hypocrisy, and that hypocrisy hinders you from God. It's your barrier. Let me beg you this morning, don't let somebody else's hypocrisy keep you from knowing the real one. Don't let somebody else's hypocrisy keep you from the reality that you can have in Jesus Christ. (coughs) Let that person deal with their own problems before God. You forget about that. Don't use it as a barrier. Don't use it as an excuse. You'll find hypocrites everywhere. But we're not asking you to believe in a hypocrite. We're asking you to believe and to follow Jesus Christ, the only one of us who has never had any hypocrisy. What is your barrier? And are you willing to give it up? Are you willing to lay it down? Whatever it is, are you willing to lay it down at the feet of Jesus and say, I surrender Jesus, I need you to be my Savior. I need you to be my King. Forgive me. I'm a sinner. If you're not following Jesus this morning, that's that's the, the question. The, the two questions before you are, what's your barrier, and are you willing to lay it down? Those of of us who know, who are following Jesus who know him can tell you it's worth it. And that the joy, the peace, the purpose that God's give that God gives, it's worth it. And that's really the purpose of what Jesus taught this morning. You know, that's that's really the, the principle of the lesson, but I also want us to make an application this morning for those of who you know who have you know said you know yes Jesus I believe in you I'm, I'm I'm following you because in this world we can get called back up we can get distracted and things can get out of place and money or a job or a position or you know a political idea or whatever it is can some somehow invade and and start to take the place of Jesus. Something other than Jesus can begin to become the priority in your your life. And so in terms of application, for those who know Jesus this morning, perhaps there's a need to say, Lord, this is becoming or has become an idol in my life. Or this sin has become a barrier to greater intimacy with you and I'm going to lay it down. Lord, we actually beg you to go back to the beginning where, where we're told to pray and to ask God, and we say, Lord, give me the strength and take it from me. Take it from me, Lord, that I might follow you fully, as was my first intention when I came to believe in you in the first place. Lord, You know, help me to honor my first intention when I first trusted you, when I first said, Lord, forgive me, I'm a sinner, and, and you know, fell down at the, at the foot of the cross. Lord, help me to fulfill and to follow through on my first intention and return to be my first love. That was the accusation in the book of Revelation that Jesus gave to the church at Ephesus, that they had done well in so many things, but they had lost their first love. And so if you say this morning, I follow Jesus, the question is, is he your first love? Or do you love someone or something more? Is he, does he have that first place? And is that evident? And is it evident in the lives of the people that are close to me? Do they know, if, if they were asked objectively, is Jesus your first love? If my family and my closest friends are asked, You know, is Chet's first love Jesus? Is the honest answer, yes. And if it's not, that's a problem. Because if it is yes, then that should be evident in my life. And it should be evident in your life. There shouldn't have to be any questioning of the people who know you. Is he following Jesus or is she following Jesus? There shouldn't be any doubt or hesitation. It should be obvious. Because Jesus said, let them see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. It's not for your credit, it's not for my credit, it's not for our glory, but it's for the glory of God. Now listen to this. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, verse 24 said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Who can be saved? But he said, what's impossible with men is possible with God. Again, to to know Jesus in the first place and to follow him throughout your life, it's impossible for men, but it's possible for God. And we have to be dependent on his strength and on his power. We're dependent. God is the only truly independent force in the universe. He is the only one who needs no other. The rest of us are dependent. And Peter said, See, we have left our homes and followed you. When he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and in the age to come eternal life. Sometimes people have to give up difficult things. Sometimes they do have to sell all. Or they have to lose all. There's places in the world even today where just to explore the idea of Jesus, and I've met some of these people, but just to explore the idea of Jesus may cost a career, may cost a home, may cost everything that they have, may cost them to have to leave their nation in hopes of being their their physical life being spared. Just to ask the question, "Who is Jesus?" But the promise of Jesus is great for all who make sacrifice to know him, for for those who give up what they could have in order to follow Jesus. Jesus says, here on this earth you'll have what? You'll have many times more family, houses. I can testify this is true because there's so many places I can go into the world today where I have family Because those are my brothers and sisters in Jesus. And I have a house to stay in because they welcome me into their homes and they give me their food that they've worked for and they share it with generosity. And I'll tell you, you know, something humbling. You you know, you go with us to, to Mexico and you go up into the mountains and you got somebody that has a dirt floor and they labor very hard for their subsistence. And you're in their home and they give you their Handmade tortillas made over an open fire that they grew the corn. And they did all the work to make it what it is. And they don't, meet it, they don't eat meat all the time, but when you come, there's chicken in that taco. And then you'd start to, to realize the joy that comes being part of the family of God with people of all, you know, from all nations and ethnic groups and tongues. And it's a taste of the kingdom because we see around the throne of God and we get a little taste, just a little taste of it this morning that there will be people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation worshiping the one true and living God and laying their crowns at the feet of the Lamb of God. And it's a beautiful thing and it's the promise that God gave to Abraham that in his family, I mean his seed, which is ultimately Jesus, that in his seed all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so we have a message that's for all people in all times and all places. And it's a, it's a, he's a savior worth following and he has a message worth sharing. And he's worth giving our lives up for. And if he's not, then the question is, why believe any of it? Why take any of it? You know, they're, they're not, some things in life are not an all or nothing proposition, but ultimately Jesus is. He doesn't save us so that we can go back into bondage of slavery to sin. He didn't save us just so that we would then live the typical Western materialistic individualistic life. He didn't save us for those purposes. He saved us for more than that. He saved us for his family and for the kingdom and that we would then be a blessing to other people. And so that's where Jesus, when he is serious when he says, give up everything and follow me. What that give up everything looks like in one life may be different than what it looks like in another life, but he's serious when he says, follow me. Jesus is for real about that. Don't let anything hinder you from knowing him more deeply and more intimately this morning we're have the bread and the cup that we take that represents the body and blood of Jesus. I'll explain that in a minute, but I'm going to give thanks for it now. I just want us to to keep it all in mind as we go into this next part of our time. Heavenly Father, we come to you now. We love you, Lord, and hope we can all say we love you. Hope we can all say we need you. I hope that those, Lord, I pray that those who have never admitted it before will this morning say, "Forgive me, I'm a sinner." They would put their trust in Your Son Jesus, be forgiven of their sins. That they would follow Him fully. Jesus, as we take the bread and the cup this morning, we remember Your Your body that was broken for us. We remember Your blood that was shed for us. And we say thank you, Lord Jesus, for your ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. We're thankful, Jesus, that the grave could not hold you and that you had victory over sin and death. And Lord, may we follow you throughout our whole lives, that you would be our Savior and our King. We would not forget, Lord, that you are King. A King in our hearts this morning, Help us to lay anything down that hinders our walk with you. We ask it in your name, Jesus.